passage is going to be in Psalm 82 this morning, so if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 82. Before we read Psalm 82, uh, I want to tell you how I understand the structure of the psalm, just to help you hear the emphasis when we read it. Um, The way that that I'm interpreting it, um, and the majority view, is that Psalm, uh, that verse 1 and 8 are the words of the psalmist, Asaph. So we see verses 1 and 8 are Asaph speaking, but then the middle section, verses 2 through 7, is actually an oracle of the Lord. It's actually the Lord speaking. So we're going to hear Asaph open, the Lord speak, and then the psalmist close. Um, and that will help us hear the emphasis of the, of the text. So if you'll stand with me as we read the Word of God, we'll read all of Psalm 82. Asaph says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Then the Lord speaks. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince." Then in verse 8, we see Asaph, the psalmist, comes back and concludes, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Let's pray. Dear Father, this morning we ask that you will open up our minds to understand your word, and you'll open up our hearts to align ourselves with what you value. And with your agenda. Lord, we praise you and we ask that you'll remove all pride, you'll remove all offense, Lord, and that you'll allow us to understand your word and what you would have us to learn this morning. Amen. You can be seated. As you might have noticed, this could be an extremely difficult psalm to understand. And uh, it doesn't quite fit into the literary categories that we usually turn to when analyzing a psalm. And there are multiple hermeneutical issues here that are suited for a good academic discussion and observation. And I'd love to go into more of those in detail with you later. But regardless of the literary categories, the context, and the background, this passage is extremely important because this is a very rare time in Scripture when God directly addresses governing officials. The passages we usually rely upon to tell us how our civic leaders should act or what the purpose of government is, uh, they're not written directly to to the government. Romans 13, um, which we discussed last year at a men's breakfast, uh, is directly focused on the right Christian attitude towards the civil government, and then we get a bonus description of what the government's purpose is in that passage. And then even Psalm 10 that we discussed last year on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, it has some implications 
of how leaders should act. But the focus of that psalm was to remind the children of God how to properly respond to injustice that we see in the culture. And uh, it's a great psalm. If you weren't with us last year, I encourage you to observe Psalm 10 and study that scripture. It, it was a, I turned frequently to it this last year when I was working 80-hour weeks in the legislature and the political stress seemed impossible for us. It's a, it's a great psalm of encouragement. But here in Psalm 82, we have a unique venue where the Lord is directly addressing political authorities and uh, and questioning them and giving them exact imperatives. So this psalm is appropriate for us today because we are looking at an atrocity that has become a political struggle. Now, you may not be that into politics. You may not be very politically minded You may think that politics is just pedantic and intolerable. And this sermon sounds like it's not really for you. But I encourage you to hear not the endorsement of a candidate, of a party, of even a piece of legislation. This morning, I encourage you to hear the heart of the Lord. That's what we see in Psalm 82. We see that the Lord cares about politics And the government because he cares about the weak and the fatherless. I hope this will be your heart as well. This political struggle over the injustice of elective abortion. It's gone on for 41 years now in earnest. Wednesday will be the anniversary of two Supreme Court decisions. That uh, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton that together legalized the intentional taking of a human life, a pre-born human life. And that was legalized across the United States, and it set the stage for a global political shift on the issue. This practice of the intentional taking of a human pre-born life occurs more than 77,000 times a year in our state, just in Texas. It happens a hundred, sorry, happens 1.3 million times in our country every year. And more than 45 million times annually worldwide. And the fight over this issue is solely a political one. That's why we need to look at this passage, and that's why we need the Lord to speak to us this morning through this passage. So let's look. Verse 1. Like I mentioned, verse 1 and verse 8 are actually the psalmist speaking, and verse 2 through 7 is an oracle of the Lord. It's the Lord's speech. So in verse 1, we see Asaph's introductory truth that sets the scene for the psalm. He writes, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, this, this verse presents a problem on the face immediately, right? We have the same Hebrew noun, uh, once in the singular form and once in the plural form. We see that it both says God and gods. And it's here, both of those are the word Elohim. And it's an extremely common term in the Old Testament. We see it's, almost, it's used almost uh, 2,600 times in the Bible. Uh, And more than 2,300 of those 2,600 times 
the Hebrew word easily refers to the one true heavenly God. And sometimes, uh, or sorry, most of these times, Elohim is pre, uh, preceded by the word Yahweh. And that's why sometimes in scripture it says the Lord God. But that doesn't always occur. Sometimes we just have the word Elohim by itself to mean the one true heavenly God. And that's uh, what the case is in Genesis 1. It says in the beginning, it just says in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So, of course, there's debate about this. Um, and there are five different in- interpretations of who the second gods are um, and in that second use of Elohim. But the majority view uh, and the earliest interpretation of this that the church fathers adopted and even Hebrew scholars was that these gods are human rulers or human judges. And I'm not going to waste time on going all through all the views, and and that's a good discussion, and it's a good test of our hermeneutics of how we really get through tough passages. Um, But I'm going to adopt that. And and so we could go through the whole list of reasons, um, contextual, linguistical reasons that I could give you uh, of that that's the proper interpretation. But a sufficient reason is that this was, in fact, the view of Jesus, I know this is an academic congregation. Most of you are seminary, most of you are seminary students or have been in seminary. Um, but does that sound like a sufficient reason that Jesus thought so? So we should agree with him. I'll take your silence as a yes. We're going to go with Jesus on this hermeneutical question. In John 10, Jesus actually cites this psalm. He actually talks about Psalm 82. And he's in a debate. And he uses this psalm and the use of the word God and sons of the Most High to deflect criticism for calling himself the Son of God. And he argues that this title, Son of God, is sometimes a designation of one of David's heirs. So you have Jesus telling the Pharisees in John 10, uh, you can't get mad at me for just saying I'm the Son of God, because that could simply mean I'm a human heir of David. So Jesus' whole argument uh, was based on this idea that the word gods in verse 1 and the term, uh, and the term son of God in verse 6 is actually referring to humans. And so when he claims to be son of God, he's, he could just possibly be calling himself a human. Now we know Jesus' real point in, in John 10 was to expose the heart of his critics. We know that in John 10, Jesus was really using this argument to show that they weren't seeking the truth. They weren't even seeking the Lord. They weren't even seeking a Messiah from David. They were actually just looking to catch Jesus in an area, uh, in a rhetorical trap. But it is interesting. Um, So we have Jesus giving us some guidance here of how we should interpret this second use of Elohim. But... um, and also we see that, that Jesus says, Psalm, uh, Psalm 82, and specifically the use of these words, is the word of God. So, furthermore, the, the dual meaning of God, that, that the word Elohim could mean human rulers or it could mean the one heavenly God that we worship, that shouldn't really bother us. Um, because in the sense, we actually use the term Lord like this. Even today, we refer to the Lord. But we also, it also has a cultural meaning. Think of Lord Darcy of Pride and Prejudice or Lord Grantham of Downton Abbey, right? 
I have to admit, I don't watch Downton Abbey. I had to look that up. Um, <laughs> might have lost some credibility there, but... So, so, but this psalm is addressing human rulers, and it shouldn't bother us that the word is used for God and for human rulers. We do the same thing every Sunday morning um, whenever we worship, and then Sunday night when we watch Pride and Prejudice or Downton Abbey. I don't know what day Downton Abbey's on TV. Sorry, <laughs> I might have missed that one. Um, so this psalm is addressing human rulers, leaders, and political authorities. And verse 1 is claiming that God is present in their civic assembly, in their courts, their councils, their governing meetings. And that's what divine assembly means. Um, Because since the noun God could be referring to rulers, the adjective divine could also be referring to just uh, governmental. Um, And that's what we see here, civic or governmental. So that's what we see. Asaph is saying in verse 1 that the true heavenly God is not just present, uh, observing, passively observing the governmental assemblies, but he is judging the deeds of those rulers while they are, uh, while they are done. Even though his final judgment may be paused, he's actively, he's in the assembly, he's in the legislature, he's in the city council. He's there actively judging the deeds, actually judging the decisions that they're making. In the Texas legislative session in Austin, um, when elected officials are on the floor debating a bill, uh, a non-politicized bill, something that really wouldn't matter to most of us, um, like livestock liability or, uh, you know, who has the authority um, to audit another office of the government or something that we really don't care about. It may be important, but it's just not that politicized. Whenever they're debating something like that, the debate is actually pretty embarrassing. We see that guys get up in front of the front mic and just say, I'm a no on this bill because it just seems stupid. And then he walks off. That's the whole argument he gives against the bill. And I wish I was making this up. But whenever it's not a very important issue, that's all we see in the divine assembly. But on specific bills dealing with hot topics like our pro-life House Bill 2, the bills that I write, the bills that we lobby for that try to protect pregnant women and save unborn children, the tone's a little bit different. Because the gallery in the legislature is full. So legislators on the floor, and they can look up and see there's a lot of people listening to their words. They know that there are thousands of people watching online, the live stream online, which I know some of you were this summer when we passed the pro-life bill. The stakes are a little bit higher. And now they still say idiotic things, don't get me wrong, but they're generally more calculated. And this is the intended impact here that, that Asaph is saying, is that the accountability of God, it doesn't depend upon a live stream online, and it doesn't depend upon citizens in the Capitol Gallery, but the Lord is the audience. The Lord is there judging them, listening to them. Now, once we realize, we do the hermeneutics and we go through the terms and we realize that God is talking to authorities here, governing authorities, um, we might get a little comfortable. We might think, whew, I'm glad I'm not the president or a legislator or a city council member. So let's sit back and read how God's going to bring the heat on those guys, 
right? Let's watch how he's going to hold them accountable. And we just get to be an audience of God, of, of God judging them. But in our particular political situation, we cannot be so comfortable. In our political context, this takes on a new significance for us. Because in a democratic republic, the supreme political authority has been granted to the citizens. The citizens entitled to vote. The citizens entitled to hold our elected officials accountable. We are the driving force of our government. Given this system, where the buck stops with us and the leaders that we put in place, we become the governing authorities. We, the voters and citizens, are the gods that Asaph, to use Asaph's terminology, we're the ones in the divine council leading our nation by God's sovereignty. And you may think we have a limited role because we only get to vote uh, twice. We only get to vote every other year. We only get to talk about. We only get to decide who the president is every four years. But at the end of the day, the political power rests with us, and the leaders, even judicial figures are indirectly chosen from us by who we put in place to choose them. So we become the gods. This is, uh, and it's by God's sovereignty that, that that is the case. To skip ahead a little bit, we see that this is the whole point of verse 6 of chapter 82. Remember, God is speaking here, and in verse 6 he says, I myself said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Verse 6 is pointing out that God has appointed these political powers to their positions of authority. When God calls calls the leaders, uh, when God puts the leaders in position, he's actually sanctioning them. He's actually allowing them to have that influence. And that is exactly how it is with us as voters. It is historically unprecedented that citizens, you and me, regular people, have this much political power, and we really underestimate that. Um, There's been studies on looking at all the civilizations in history, all the different citizens, and we are less than 3% of individuals, humans, who have lived on Earth have as much political power that we do. And um, when you look at ancient times, when you look at even 400 years ago, how regular citizens like us, who are not born into royalty, how much political influence they have, it really is historically unprecedented that we get to choose our leaders. We get to guide the direction of our nation through elections and through our democratic republic. Um, In verse 6, we're seeing the, the goal that rulers receive their authority as representatives of the true God, And that's why Scripture constantly calls us to respect governing authorities, to respect even pagan leaders. In Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, 13, just to remind you how clear Paul is about this, he says in Romans 13, he says, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There's no way of getting out of this. God is the sovereign Um, God is sovereign in choosing who are the political leaders. So I encourage you this morning, one of the the things is to reflect upon this this responsibility that you have, that God has sovereignly put you in this nation, in this political environment, with this system. 
You know, if you were born into a different context, if you were born into a monarchy, and you happened to be up next to sit on the throne, that you knew soon you would be the king or you would be the queen making the decisions, you would take that extremely uh, you would, extremely important. That you, th- you would see that as extremely important. You would actually look in Scripture closely to see how should I rule as a leader, right? But here, we have been put on the throne by God's sovereignty, so to speak. We have been given the political power as citizens and as voters. And what we do when we don't take advantage of that role as citizens is that we hand the throne, the crown, off to someone else. Is that we say, I know the Lord has sovereignly put me in this place of position, but I'm going to pass it on it. I'm going to let someone else make these decisions. And they may be according to biblical principles and they may not. So Psalm, this Psalm 82 is actually about us. And in verses 2 through 7, we see the Lord is talking to us as a collective body of citizens, as voters, as the governing officials of today. Now we see, so let's look at verse 2 through 4. We see that God's word, these are God's words, and he's addressing the civic leaders. And he addresses them with an accusation and a directive. In verse 2, the Lord asks, how long will you judge unjustly? And show partiality to the wicked. This tone, this tone of questioning that God with his rhetorical question, it, it, this tone is similar to what Jesus himself tells the Pharisees in Luke eleven forty two. Jesus clearly says to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you for neglecting justice. And he's talking about the religious leaders who had a lot of political sway. This is a heavy charge, and it was an accurate one. We read about the Pharisees, and we see um, that they were showing partiality, that they were judging unjustly. But here, the Lord is speaking to rulers, and he has two prongs in his rhetorical question in verse, uh, in verse 2 of Psalm 82. First, he says that they judge unjustly. The Hebrew term here carries the notion of iniquity. And unrighteousness. It's not so much a legal term as a moral term. So, in effect, God is saying your judgments and political decisions are morally corrupt. Now, in this context of Psalm 82, the political structure, uh, sorry, the social structure um, placed a few owners of land at the top of the social pyramid, and that they dominated everyone else who wanted to work on their land. And so this system, this social structure, opened itself up for a lot of abuse of the landowners to the workers because these workers would essentially be indentured servants. And judges in that context were necessary to make sure these landowners were not taking, were not taking advantage of and systematically abusing those that they hired um, from ye- for years at a time. Their contracts weren't day-to-day. They were years at a time. And so judges were necessary to make sure that the rich weren't taking completely advantage of the poor and abusing them. And it seems like they failed because they're judging unjustly. And the second point is that they show partiality to the wicked. So apparently these leaders are defending and siding with the landowners, with the criminals, and not the victims, and not the poor. So we've seen that God hates partiality. 
we, we see that he hates all prejudice, whether it's based on gender, race, socioeconomic status, education, or age. James makes that irrefutably clear in chapter 2 of James. He hates it. God hates partiality. He hates prejudice because God values human life regardless of usefulness, regardless of its social status, how much land that individual owns, or any other criteria we could come up with. All humans are made in his image and possess immeasurable value. We see in the Genesis account, uh, sorry, in the creation account in Genesis, we see that humans are God's co regions. And they've been placed on earth as his representatives to be the head of the creation order. God has a specific place in creation for humans, for all humans. In any way that man makes to try to divide up that some humans are more important than others is despicable in the sight of the Lord. That's why partiality is such a big deal. That's why James takes it so seriously in chapter 2 as well, when there was partiality in the church of all places. Now, this emphasis of the question, how long? Okay, looking, looking at verse 2, it says, how long will you judge unjustly? How long will you show partiality to the wicked? This indicates that there was a sustained, systematic pattern of injustice. This year, like I mentioned earlier, marks 41 years of, in the U.S. of a systematic, utter disregard and violent destruction of our pre-born neighbors, which has been legally sanctioned and allowed by our government. The injustice of elective abortion is being marketed and sold in sound bites, in ads, and in talking points to women constantly. It's unrelenting. It is a systematic culture. How long will we encourage, will our culture encourage this pattern of devaluing women, of devaluing human life, children, and human sexuality? This sustained pattern of injustice in our culture today has caused the outcome where one out of every four women in the United States has had an abortion by the time they're 30 years old. One out of four. Just think about statistically what that means for you. What that means about our church. What that means about white settlement, about our city. One out of four women before they're 30 years old have had an elective abortion. How long... After that rhetorical question that the Lord asks in verse 2, the Lord gives them four penetrating divine imperatives. Verse 3 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. These imperatives are why God cares about what's going on in that governing assembly. These imperatives is, this is God's agenda. This is his political agenda. This is the reason he's involved with rulers. This is why he cares what decisions we make in the legislature or who you vote for. 
we see that God cares about justice. And the political arena has the most effect on human action and the plight of the weak and the needy. Let's look at these. The first instruction is give justice to the weak and the fatherless. He's saying do right for those don't, that don't have a voice or an advocate. Preborn children are the epitome of the weak and the fatherless. These victims of abortion have no parents sticking up for them because their parents have been deceived into thinking that this is what's best for their family or what this is best even for their child. Our preborn neighbors are utterly defenseless. But this is a call for justice for them. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. And this is not just something for us to add to our to-do list, our, our, good, our to-do list of good works. Justice is the central and defining attribute that God has revealed about himself. In Deuteronomy 10, the Lord declares, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Even David in Psalm 37, he just simply proclaims, the Lord loves justice. So it's no surprise that we see this call for justice of the fatherless repeated in Scripture over and over, New Testament, Old Testament. We see this call for justice for the weak and the fatherless. This is, a, this is a huge premise that fuels the gospel, that God loves justice, that he is a just God. We see that this in one of the most powerful gospel metaphors that we have, the, the metaphor of adoption. We were the weak and the fatherless, and God gave us spiritual justice. Romans 8.15 tells us, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God gave us divine justice through Christ. And he calls us as civil authorities to give earthly justice to others. He goes on in the second imperative to tell us to maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. These victims are completely at the mercy of others, destitute and helpless. We're supposed to maintain their rights and make sure there's no discrimination against them. And, and this honestly is, is a, radical, a radical imperative given the cultural context in the ancient Near East. This was a context in the ancient Near East where civil rights, personal civil rights, was not given in a commonplace notion like it is here. But God values each of his image bearers, and that was rather radical for governing authorities to stick up for the rights of the poor, of the weak. You're supposed to, in that context, stick up for the landowners. They're the powerful ones. We're called to protect the afflicted and the destitute who have nothing. And in our case, our pre-born neighbors, not even, they don't even have a voice to cry for help with. The third imperative is rescue the weak and the needy. 
rescue, it says. They're in a helpless situation and need the action of another on their behalf. We're not just called to a fight for these individuals in the Capitol or in the court, in the courtroom. We're called to go out and rescue them. The Lord continues, deliver the weak and the needy from the wicked. We have to save these weak and fatherless individuals from those that want to do them harm. This includes, and and for us today, thinking about elective abortion, this includes pregnant women in our society. We have to save them, protect them from cultural forces that would do them harm. It's been shown that more than 60% of women seeking elective abortions feel coercion. They feel pressure. They feel forced to this decision. We have to protect them from governments in some cases. We see in other countries like China and India that forced abortions are common. In China, women are regularly forced to have abortions in order to comply with the government's one-child policy law that is brutally enforced. We have to rescue and deliver pregnant women from a predatory abortion industry. This is why the bill that we passed in the summer, that three-quarters of it was focused on requiring the abortion industry to raise its standards because, it, because we've seen, time and time again, we've seen the business model. The abortion industry in the United States preys on women with its business model built around selling unsafe, damaging abortions. Not just for the unborn child that loses its life, but also for the pregnant mother who is harmed physically and spiritually. Now, textually, this, we have an irony here. We see... In the text, the wicked are the ones that are being shown partiality in court in verse 2. But they're the ones here in this verse, in this imperative. They're the, the wicked are the ones with their throats around the necks of the weak. So the courts are preferring them, giving them preference, giving them the advantage. But they're actually the ones that are doing the abuse. Now, in verse 5, we see that, that God's giving commentary. They're not in quotation. We, we, the ESV takes it out of quotes. And so we see that God is still saying this, but he's not directing this commentary to the political authorities. He explains that these leaders know nothing. That they have, they don't possess the knowledge and they lack understanding. They neither have the facts nor the wisdom necessary to do the job the Lord's given them of governing. That's a short way, that's a long way to say that they're idiots and they're fools. This level of ignorance and foolishness results in them walking about in darkness. This obviously brings to mind the imagery used in the Bible, even Jesus himself. And we see a good example in 1 John of this imagery of darkness and light, walking in the light and the implications of walking in darkness. In a a lighter analogy, I think of my three-year-old son, Nahum. He loves to play pirate. 
with a sleeping mask that we have at the house. And so he usually puts the sleeping mask over his head and covers one of his eyes, and he's a pirate, magically. Now, when he's feeling particularly piratey, the sleeping mask goes all the way over his eyes, both eyes, right? That, that creates a problem. <laughs> because then he's, you know, to double the pirate, and he goes about playing like that. And when you're a three-year-old, playing means running around and jumping around. Now, from a parental, from a parental standpoint, we see him running into walls. We see him jumping into furniture, right? It's absolute foolishness. And it drives my wife crazy because she knows the serious injury that it could have caused him or his one-year-old sister. He's oblivious, you know? This is, this is a fraction of the perspective of our Heavenly Father looking at us, what we do morally when we cover our eyes, when we walk in darkness, and the harm that we're causing ourselves and the consequences to our society. The consequences of all this ignorance, look at what the Lord says, the consequence of all this ignorance is that all the foundations of the earth are shaken. The moral principles that God has instilled in creation, in the creation order, are altered by this injustice. Scripture teaches us that in addition to the physical order, there's a moral order and a structure to the universe. And that these two orders are deeply connected. This is a biblical theme that pops up, especially in the prophets, when we see... um, the consequences of injustice in the moral order affects the physical order. So, and this is, the the connection of these two realms is extremely explicit in our case today of the injustice that we're looking at today with elective abortion. Because what we see is, we see in Genesis 2, when God creates man, it says that God formed him from the dust, and it uses a verb um, of how a potter shapes clay. We see the same imagery of forming, of crafting. We see that same imagery whenever Scripture describes what God is doing in the womb. We read some of that this morning. Psalm 139, For you formed, shaped like like a potter, my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And then verse 15, I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So while God is knitting together in the womb, the darkness of elective abortion actually tears apart that life. Abortion dashes their little ones into pieces, to use the imagery of 2 Kings 8. Sin is parasitic on on creation. This wrongdoing in the moral order affects the creative order. It's actually anti-creation. It drains the life from an originally good thing. And that draining actually destroys creation. 
Scripture indicates the moral personhood of that individual being at conception. And this is the core question in the debate about abortion, of whether that human in the womb is actually a moral person. This was at the core of the decision of Roe, and that judicial decision hinged upon whether preborn humans were moral and therefore legal persons. And there's several points on this, and, and um, if you really are struggling with the scripture view on this, I'd love to talk to you and give you some resources that go through the whole biblical account. But for now, I just want to point to two things. First, that David and multiple prophets, they identify the beginning of their own personal existence at conception. And that's what we see, we saw in Psalm 139. We see Jeremiah does the same thing very clearly. We also see that there are legal principles in the Old Testament that the protection, the legal protection you would give for a a full-grown life outside of the womb is the same legal protection you need to give for life in the womb. And the consequences are the same for murder as is for causing the murder of an unborn child. So I do see a clear point being made in Scripture that abortion is murder. And like all other murders, it's an ultimate act of injustice. The Lord goes from this and from this talking about this undoing the foundations of the earth into verse 6. And the Lord says, I said you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. I cited Paul's clarity earlier that no, there is no authority on earth except from God. And this is the same clarity with which Jesus spoke to Pilate, right? When Jesus said, um, he, Jesus is telling Pilate, Pilate, he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So in verse 6, we see the same thing. God is saying, I have given you human rulers the authority as my regents on earth, but I haven't made you divine. You shall die, and you will fall like any prince. Unlike the heavenly God, these gods are Adam, to use the Hebrew word. They are still mortal men. All the greatest politicians, judges, and presidents, all the leaders that we may respect on earth are still under the effects of the fall and are subject to physical death. They will still die. This obviously points to the greatness of God, that God is the only, uh, that God is a greater judge, that God is a greater political leader and king. And that's what we see Asaph remembering in verse 8. Asaph goes back to this. And so what we see is the psalmist back in verse 8 giving his conclusion. He says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. The psalmist here is reminding us that human justice is limited. Even the most utopian and biblical society in human history. I'm clearly thinking of the great Republic of Texas. The most utopian and biblical society in human history is not capable to facilitate full justice. 
We are called to give, promote, and love justice, but we can't do it alone. And that's what the psalmist comes back to. All human attempts at justice point to this conclusion. The Lord must bring justice. It says, stand up and judge all the earth, not just the leaders. And then he writes, for, and then he writes, you shall inherit the earth. These concepts are related. Asaph is saying, Lord, you can judge the earth because it is all yours. You own it all. You were sovereign over it all, and you can judge it. This is very similar to the tone, the tone of the psalmist here is very similar to what we see at the end of Revelation. When John writes simply, come Lord Jesus. Like in verse 1, here in verse 8, there's two sides to this truth. That, that God's judgment is a fearful thing for the wicked that do injustice to the fatherless. But it's also a reminder of God's incomprehensible grace to us, to believers. Asaph is pleading with the Lord to judge and restore justice only like a believer could. Only someone who understands the justice of God. This morning we can cry out for the Lord to judge the earth. Because we are also the recipients of his grace. And we know that the Lord, when the Lord takes place to judge, he won't look to our injustice. He won't look to our sin, our iniquity, the times that we've been the wicked abusing others and sinning. We know that justice is at the heart of the gospel in this sense, that God actually descended from heaven and became a man. That he actually stretched out his hand and healed and fed and lifted a sinful world from its sin. He came to rescue and deliver us by physically dying on the cross. Jesus physically, historically raised from the dead, defeating death, and ascended into heaven. And now, the ultimate future, hope, of complete and final justice, is in that promised return. When he will come back and he'll function as judge and king of the earth. That's why we can so confidently ask for the Lord to judge It's because we know Christ has already received the judgment for our iniquity, for our moral corruption. Whenever Christ returns, just laws will prevail. The wicked will be justly judged. We will be graciously pardoned. And there will be peace for the afflicted and the destitute. There will be no Supreme Court opinions. There will be no elections, no lobbying, no debates, political posturing, or political ads, thank goodness. There will simply be the reign of a just government. So we we need to react in three ways to this. First off, we need to give justice. This is political activity. We do have to act. We have to work. We can't just bring the message of how the justice of God has been satisfied in Christ, but the Lord is calling us to actually rescue and protect the helpless, to save the innocent and restore justice in our land. So in a book called Politics According to the Bible, Wayne Grudem does a great job of explaining different attitudes that Christians have towards government. And I encourage you to use that resource. 
Wayne Grudem explains that there are multiple wrong attitudes, and I've even heard some in this congregation whenever we were here and had these conversations with our friends. And there are attitudes that range from people who think everything is politics and everything in politics is evil. It includes views that we should just focus on doing evangelism, not politics. And some of you even struggle with thinking we should just do politics and not evangelism. But Grudem comes to the conclusion, the biblical conclusion, that Christians should have a biblical influence over human government. And he writes, Christians should seek to influence civil government according to God's moral standards and God's purposes for government as revealed in the Bible. And that's what we're seeing in Psalm 82, is that we as political authorities are being called to be political, to have a political agenda, because the Lord has a political agenda. Now, those four imperatives do give us our goals, our political agenda. And while we may disagree on how to apply these to our current political situation and our political environment and the laws that we have on the books, while we can have that discussion, that needs to be our goal and that needs to be our filter. God cares about what's going on in the governing assembly because the weak and the fatherless are at stake. And we have to care too. So this means voting. This means registering to vote for some of you. This means researching what, uh, what and who we're voting on. This means advocating for the weak and the fatherless to our elected officials. Voting is not enough. When you put someone in office and then you have to hold them accountable to these biblical principles and make sure that they're making the right decisions and talking to them and encouraging them and showing them why that is the right decision. The second application is rescue the needy. One of the other imperatives God gives us. Rescue the needy. This isn't a political activity. Political change is slow. Human justice is slow in the governing realm. We cannot simply wait for human justice to be achieved politically. We must go to the weak and the fatherless. So we have to serve in the pregnancy resource centers. We need to volunteer at the women's shelters and give to these ministries. We even need to open up our families to the ministry of adoption and reach out to these weak and fatherless individuals. We need to give to the Ramey Fund here at Redeemer that helps families participate in that ministry of adoption and physically deliver these children. If your family can't open up their home, I encourage you to open up your wallet to that so that others who have been called to that ministry are able to. And the third point, the third application we see is that we need to be like the psalmist here. We need to be like Asaph. We need to petition the Lord for justice. We need to pray. Asaph is not just recording what God is saying to these rulers. He's not just going to sit back and watch the showdown of God bring judgment on these wicked individuals. But he cried out to the Lord in this psalm. We need to pray for the safety of the oppressed. We need to constantly pray for the preborn that they'll be spared and live. 
We need to pray against the wicked. We need to pray that the abortion industry, that the human trafficking industry, that the, por- the pornography industry will crumble. That they will lose their appeal. That they'll lose their taxpayer funding. That they'll be exposed as the wicked who prey on the weak and the fatherless. And lastly, like the psalmist, we need to petition the Lord for justice in the sense of praying for pregnant women. That they'd be courageous, strong, and find rescue and deliverance, physically and spiritually. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you for Scripture. Lord, we praise you for the clarity of Scripture Lord, and we ask for the same amount of clarity in our speech, and we ask for the same amount of courage in our lives to stand up for the weak and the fatherless, Lord. I pray that you'll move in our hearts that we should care about politics because the Lord cares about politics, that we should care for the weak and the fatherless because you care for the weak and the fatherless. Lord, I praise you for this congregation, Lord, and I pray that you'll send your spirit to continue to move, Lord, and apply this scripture to our lives and that we can encourage each other in this task to take up God's political agenda.